Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, you say that all your scriptures are breathed out by you and they're profitable for our teaching, rebuke, correction and training and they teach us how to trust Jesus for eternal life. Uh, we pray now that as we turn to Hebrews, this part of your word, uh, your word would do its work in our lives, that this would help us to trust Jesus and equip us to serve him. And help me in my weakness to speak your word truthfully and clearly to Jesus' glory. Amen. Now, I know that quite a lot of you have had the experience of living in another country where your native tongue is not spoken and trying to follow what's going on around you. Uh, the first few weeks of trying to think in another language is exhausting, isn't it? And you get back to your room at the end of the day and, and you've done very little, but you're just tired out by the concentration. Well, trying to read Hebrews is a bit like that uh, for many of us. You know, the words and concepts are so unfamiliar that while they're in English, it's like trying to think in a foreign language. Covenant, priest, sanctuary, tabernacle, and, and to top it all off, the sprinkling of a heifer's ashes, whatever that means. Actually, you can find out about that in numbers. But as those of you who speak two or three languages know, just because the words are different, it doesn't mean that the concerns being spoken of in those words aren't the same as our concerns. But what's being spoken about in, in foreign languages are genuine human concerns. And so when you think about Hebrews 9, well, recognise that what's being spoken of reflects genuine human concerns. And try these words when you think about what's spoken there. Freedom, peace, hope, relationship with the true God, your creator. Because that's what Hebrews 9, in all its foreignness, is about. It tells us that Jesus brings to those who believe in him freedom, peace, hope relationship with the true God. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Hear that? Jesus, it says here, obtains, brings an eternal redemption. Now, you might associate redemption with getting something back from a pawnbroker or redeeming your winning entry in a competition. But for the first hearers, redemption spoke of freedom. Freedom obtained at a cost through the paying of the price for freedom. It was a word that had been used to describe what God had done when he'd rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. It was said he had redeemed them, set them free to be his people at cost, the cost of his exertion. And redemption for the first hearers was a word in everyday use. You see, they had a culture with slaves 
and slaves, whether they become slaves through being captured in war or being sold as slaves to repay their debts, slaves got their freedom back by being redeemed, by paying the money that had been set as the price for their freedom. They purchased redemption. This is saying Jesus brings freedom. And it says it's an eternal redemption, an eternal freedom. So it's something that will never be reversed. Set free by Jesus, you will always be free, never enslaved again. But freedom from what? Well, our author's not speaking of political freedom or freedom from physical slavery. Not all the people he was speaking to were slaves, yet all needed redemption. You get a sense of the freedom Jesus brings from what our author has already said in the book, already said about the death of Jesus. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is a freedom from what enslaves not just first century people, but all of us. It's freedom from death and the fear of death that drives us always to save our own lives, whatever the cost to others that enslaves us to the lies of the devil. And so this is a freedom too from the devil's rule and the lie which brings death. And that subjection to death and the lie is a slavery. We can't escape by ourselves. We can't not conform to death's will. You can't stop yourself from dying. And you cannot hide from yourself the reality that for all its good, its richness, its love, your life will decay and stop. That shadow is always there on the horizon. You're always travelling towards it. But Jesus brings freedom from death and the life-denying rule of the lie that we can be like God. And Hebrews 9 says Jesus brings peace. Verse 14, how much more then, he writes, comparing it to the, the well, what you heard in Leviticus 16, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. It says Jesus, by his death, cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death. Now there's a bit to unpack there, isn't there? See, how do you think of conscience? Perhaps you think of it as a, a kind of guide. You get your conscience's verdict on an intended course of action before you do it, and your conscience helps you decide whether you ought to do it or not. But the ancients thought of conscience primarily as memory, something that kept a record of acts done in the past. And for them, it was generally an accusing memory, a disturbing recollection of the wrongs you'd done. Oh, and the word translated conscience here also has a wider sense of consciousness, of self-awareness of our decisions and why we make them. And in the Greek Old Testament, uh, this word could also be used occasionally as the translation of the Hebrew word for heart. And the heart stood for the willing, thinking core of our being. And so 
Here, conscience is not just that narrow faculty that tells us whether or not our behaviour has conformed to some standard of right or wrong. No, conscience here stands for our whole self, with a focus on our self-aware self, the consciousness of the whole person, but with a colouring, the whole person aware of our past, the wrong we've done, and the whole person aware that what we will, well, we will wrong. Our conscience here is our whole self aware that we're unfit for God's presence because we've given ourselves in deed and will to what it calls acts that lead to death. Now that's not talking of a legalistic reliance on the law, it's talking of the wrong things we've done. The same phrase is used back in chapter 6 verse 1 where it says that we've been, as part of the foundation of following Christ, We've been led to repentance from dead works, that is, from acts that lead to death. But that repentance from the wrong we've done can't remove the record of the wrong we've already done. (laughs) That stays with us, with all the unsettling awareness of our shame and the disturbing fear of receiving what those acts deserve. Oh, and repentance alone can't deal with the habit of our will, the habituation of our will to do wrong, to live the life oriented towards disobedience to God. (laughs) Can't deal with the reality of past wrong. We have a conscience, a consciousness, an awareness of wrong things we've done that drives us away from God, that makes us fearful of God's judgment, makes us ashamed in his presence. But Jesus, it says, he cleanses our conscience, our whole self, in our self-awareness. Now, the author is using the language of the Old Testament here. The cleansed were those who could come into the presence of the holy God and not be destroyed because they no longer defiled that presence with their presence. See, this is saying that Jesus removes both the shame and fear we have before God so that we can now do what we were made to do. We can worship our creator. We can serve him. And cleansing speaks also of that change in our consciousness, in our wills that orients us to God and doing his will. A cleansed conscience is peace. Peace with God objectively. He sees no longer anything to condemn in you. You're at peace with him. And peace within ourselves subjectively, where we're no longer tormented by fear of judgment, where we know the end of shame in knowing that we are known and still not driven away by the one who knows all. Those with a cleansed conscience no longer need to hide from God or fear meeting God but they're equipped to live with God, to live as they were made to be, those who can serve him with joy and thanks. And that freedom and peace, that redemption and cleansed conscience are the foundation of a relationship with God that brings a sure hope. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he, Jesus, has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus brings into effect, that is, he inaugurates 
that new covenant that our author's already spoken of in the preceding chapter where he quoted from Jeremiah 31. Jesus, he says, brings us into a relationship with the true and living God, the just and holy God, where we can relate to God as his people forever because God has committed himself to give us a new heart that wants to love God and do his will, to give us a genuine relationship with himself where we know him. Oh, committed himself to forgive our sins forever. And because of that, those who believe in Jesus will receive what our author calls, calls the promised eternal inheritance. That is, they have a sure and rich hope and we all need hope. He says this is hope that is promised in the Old Testament that speaks again and again of the time God would bring where he would dwell among his people and they would know peace, security and prosperity in his presence. That's spoken over and over again in the Old Testament, spoken of. Whether it's Isaiah speaking of the new heaven and earth or Ezekiel of the new Israel where life would flow from the temple of God in their midst or Amos speaking of the time when new wine would drip from the mountains. This hope is promised in the Old Testament. It's promised by Jesus in the Gospel too when he spoke of eternal life or of God removing all evil from his kingdom and his people being gathered to himself. This hope is spoken of as the believer's eternal inheritance. And again, this is an Old Testament way of speaking. Inheritance was the way God had spoken of an Israelite's placing his belonging to the promised land. That land was their inheritance, always, permanently theirs, theirs by right of God's gift. But the believer in Jesus' inheritance is eternal, that is, it belongs to the age to come. Eternal inheritance speaks of the believer's secure and abiding possession of a place in the new heaven and earth, in God's rest, of being at peace with God in his presence and never being dispossessed by sin or death. So think about what Hebrews says Jesus brings. Freedom, peace, a sure hope because believers in Jesus have a secure relationship through Jesus with the living, true and just God. Now what Jesus has achieved freedom, peace, hope. That addresses the longings of each one of us, doesn't it? And we are all God's creatures made to know and love him, who owe our lives to him, and yet we are alienated from God. We all die. We know what it is like to be enslaved to the fear of death and lies. And we all know the memory of wrong, the accusation of conscience, the fear of being exposed, the fear of getting what we deserve. And knowing these things, we all long, don't we, for freedom from death, for peace in our hearts and peace with our Creator, for a hope to live for. Now these things, the Gospel says, are things Jesus has already brought now for those who trust him. Christ has come already as the high priest 
of the good things that are already here. Believers in Jesus experience these good things now. Experience these good things because of Jesus' death, because his sacrifice of himself has been accepted in the presence of God. You, you probably noticed as Hebrews 9 was being read that there really was a lot of blood sloshing around in this chapter and many references to death. That's right. Blood is central to our author's presentation of what Jesus has done, of the good things he has brought. We're told, verse 12, that Jesus enters God's presence by his own blood. That is, Jesus' blood brings him into God's very presence and so equips him to be the source of an eternal redemption. And we're told, verse 14, that Jesus' blood is the source of his effective cleansing of our consciences. The blood of Christ cleanses our consciences. And so we see his blood is central to his work, the source of his eternal effectiveness. In fact, when speaking of Jesus inaugurating the new covenant by his death, our author tells us by comparison with human wills that Jesus' death, his shed blood, is essential for that new covenant coming into effect. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set us free from sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who makes it. Now, you might, when you're listening, have been wondering what the connection is between this covenant thing and this will thing, and we know lots more about wills than we know about covenants. But the word translated covenant and will is actually the same word in Greek. And so in verse 15, he is talking of a diatheke. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new diatheke. Don't take my pronunciation in any ways correct, but it'll work, it'll work for the purpose of this. right? He's the mediator of a new diatheke. Verse 16, he just continues. In the case of a diatheke, one word. Our author's using the different context in which the one word is used to make a very clear point. There must be death for the will, the covenant, to come into effect. He's saying Jesus' death is absolutely necessary for the new covenant to be inaugurated, for people to be able to relate to God under its terms. In fact, he goes on to illustrate the necessity of a death for the inauguration of a covenant by reference, as you heard, to the old covenant, the covenant God made with the people of Israel at Sinai. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. And he concludes that this blood was necessary because of cleansing. Everything had to be cleansed. Well, almost everything with blood. He's saying for God to live in covenant relationship with his people under the outward sign of the tabernacle, the shadow of the heavenly, the people and all the elements of his presence, you know, the altar and the temple, had to be cleansed, had to have their external defilement removed by blood, the blood of a sacrificial animal who'd been killed. 
In fact, he concludes, doesn't he, with a general principle that the Old Testament law has taught. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews, the gospel is clear. All the good we have comes from Jesus' death. It's central to his work. No, it's actually essential to his work, essential to bringing this new covenant. But why? And why speak of Jesus' blood and not just of his death on the cross? Well, speaking of Jesus' blood is speaking of his death. It is his life offered in death, his blood shed in death. But it's a way of speaking of his death that highlights that his death is a sacrifice to deal with sin, with our sin. And we heard in Leviticus 16 that the manipulation of the blood of the sacrificial animal was a large part of what the priest did, was how atonement was applied to the people and the furniture of the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement. In fact, the mention of blood started with a description of the Jewish high priest's work on that day. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood. You see, Jesus' death throughout this passage is being presented by way of comparison and contrast with the sacrifices the priests of the Old Covenant made, especially the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And so, in verse 14, Jesus' death is spoken of as an offering, an offering Jesus himself makes. And we're told it's a a fit offering because his life is unblemished. Like the acceptable sacrificial animal, his life was without fault or defect. And it is made through the eternal spirit. Like all of Jesus' life and ministry, it's performed in the power of the spirit. For Jesus is, as Jesus himself declared in Luke 4, the one anointed by the spirit, empowered by the spirit, to bring good news to the poor and the time of God's favour, and he does that by his death. Now, first century readers wouldn't have been troubled by this talk of blood and sacrifice. All the readers, Romans and Greeks as well as Jews, were used to sacrifices made to God or their gods as part of their worship, and that might be the background of some of you here. In fact, As we see from Hebrews 9, animal sacrifice was an essential part of the Jewish religion, the religion of the Old Covenant. The sacrifice of the animal, the death and then the manipulation of the blood was already thought by the first hearers to be the way to remove the uncleanness that sin brought. The way provided by God for atonement for their sins to be forgiven and for them to be reconciled to God. All his first hearers would have agreed. They would have said, yes, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. But for many of us, that doesn't make immediate sense, does it? And so we need to probe deeper. Why blood? Why was Jesus' death necessary for our cleansing and forgiveness, for our freedom, peace and hope? And to probe deeper, we need to just pause for a moment and think more generally about God and us and about sin and judgment. God is holy. That is, he is separate from us, separate from our lies, separate from our death, separate from our sin, untouched by it, unchallenged by it. He always is and is always good and true and just. That's right, he is just. 
He maintains life-giving order in the universe and insists that actions, our actions, should get what they deserve because that's the foundation of a just order. His justice is seen in his giving of a just and righteous law and visiting just punishment on those who break it. God, being just, is committed to maintaining his justice. He is committed to keeping his word, a word which warns that disobeying his law brings death. And you know, anything else would be unthinkable. For God not to keep his word would be for God to cease to be God. For God not to punish sin would be for him to abandon his rule and his righteousness. It would be to abandon his creation to injustice where evil is never held to account, where it doesn't matter if you're a Stalin who died in his bed or a Mother Teresa, where it doesn't matter if you're a faithful husband and wife who cares for your sixth spouse or a husband who, or wife who, when the going gets tough, abandons their promise in pursuit of their own happiness. For God to abandon his justice would be to leave the world as a place where lies rule, where in the end grey death consumes all, for the lie has no power to sustain or bring life, where in the end the selfish self seeks to consume all just to sustain itself, only death. And God will never abandon his creation. He will never abandon his justice, for he is God and he's good. God, what about us? Well, we are, despite what we often like, we are creatures. We don't have life in ourselves. It's a gift. And we sin. That is, we choose to ignore God, to use what God has given us without thanks or acknowledgement to God, to disobey God. We fall short of the life God has intended for us as those made in his image. And our sin, even the smallest sin, is a direct challenge to God's rule, to his ordering of the universe. That's right, there is no such thing really as a small thing. Let me, let me give you an example. I mean, I could take eating a piece of fruit. But what about stealing a paperclip? Can't get much more trivial than that, can it? But what if you know God has said to you, you will not steal? And you say to yourself, oh, I can use this paperclip, I'll never notice it. I know it's not mine, but oh, I can use it. What are you actually doing? Well, you're actually saying you know better than God. You're actually saying that the creature should rule, not the creator. You are pitting yourself against your maker. You're actually embracing a rebellion that left to itself would unravel the universe. And the problem is every one of us is doing that. Every one of us is saying, I rule. My way, not God's. My way, not yours. Now, seen on the big screen of history of the world, our sins, the source of the moral disorder, the chaos and conflict that demeans, distorts and destroys human life because creatures don't have the wisdom or might to rule and they cannot give life. 
For they don't have life in themselves. They can't restore to life. Seen on the little screen of our lives, our sin, whether it's our greed or our pride or our lust, destroys trust, subordinates the interests of others to our own, in our arrogance hurts the ones we love even while seeking to do them good, desensitises us to the harm we do others. It's the source of those small and great cruelties that diminish the lives of others, the abuse, the neglect, the indifference that twists and distorts every life. Our sin deserves death. Just as a persistent rebellion that seeks to a kingdom, that to destroy a kingdom deserves exclusion from that kingdom, deserves death. Our sin means there's no place for us in the kingdom of life. And our sin defiles us in God's sight, tarnishes us with the offence of our proud rebellion and it excludes us from God's presence. So none of us could live with God if God hadn't provided a way, a way of dealing with our sin. And this is actually what the sacrifices of the Old Testament taught. They taught that both that sin deserved death and that God had provided a way for the sinner not to die, a way that involved the death of a substitute in the sinner's place and then the demonstration of that death in God's presence in the manipulation of the sacrifice's blood. Now, we, we probably don't think much about sacrificial animals, you know, sheep, goats, cattle. But, you know, that unblemished sacrifice for an agricultural people was a precious life upon which their continuing life defended, depended. And so this system of sacrifice also taught them that forgiveness costs, that there is always a cost to forgiveness. Now, that's seen most easily, isn't it, with monetary debt. If I owe $100 and you, for some reason known only to yourself, forgive me that debt, well, you've lost the $100. It's not coming back to you. You've paid a cost to forgive. But where the debt is personal, say I owe you loyalty or love, and I fail to show them by betraying your interests or being indifferent to you or even acting as if I hated you by giving the love I owe you to another, well, it still costs you to forgive me. It's intangible, but it's actually a greater cost, isn't it? You have to bear the hurt. You have to bear the disappointment. You bear the loss of what's rightfully yours. You bear the cost of having your humanity diminished. Oh, yes, and you bear the risk of having your love again disappointed, having your interests again betrayed. Forgiveness always costs the one who forgives. The law, the sacrifices of the law teach all these things, that God is holy and just and will keep his just law that we are sinners and our sin brings death and exclusion from God, that God provides a way for sinners to live in his presence by providing a costly sacrifice to die in our place to pay the price of forgiveness. But, you know, the Old Testament sacrifices also showed those who used them in their practice and repetition that they could not deal with the full offence of our sin, with the internal reality of our defilement. They couldn't perfect 
as it says, the conscience of the worshipper. Verse 9, an illustration indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able, it's actually to perfect the conscience of the worshipper, make it whole, fit for God's presence. Oh, and the Old Testament had always been clear that there were some sins for which there was no sacrifice, high-handed sins, or sins that cut people off from the people like murder or adultery or idolatry, and you say, oh, yes, that's deserved and I'm not a murderer. Well, remember, Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, sorry, murder, you've committed adultery. The Jews of the first century knew that. They knew that Paul was bringing them good news when he came to that synagogue in Antioch and he said, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses and a justification they needed. The defilement of our souls is more than could ever be dealt with by the blood of a sacrificial animal. And so God, we learn in Hebrews, has provided his son Jesus as the sacrifice. Sin can't be overlooked, just as a case of Ebola can't be ignored, it spreads death. And God will not forgive at the cost of abandoning his justice, for he is just. Justice is not something outside of himself that he can take or leave as convenient. He's committed to his law, the law, his just law that demands death for lawbreakers. And so, in Jesus' death, the covenant initiator and keeper died in the place of covenant breakers to free them from the penalties the law demanded. God provided the sacrifice. And only Jesus, the unblemished son, could give his life for our lives. The psalmist recognised this really long ago. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom of a life is costly. No payment is ever enough that they should live on forever. You see, it's impossible for any of us to give our lives for another because our own lives are forfeit. We deserve death. We would die and die forever. We've got to give our lives for our own sin. But what we could not do, Jesus Christ can do. He had no debt to pay, for he had never sinned. His death is a gift, not an exaction. And he could pay the cost of forgiveness, for he is God to whom the debt is owed. He's the mediator. Oh, not because he brings God and man, as it were, together. It's because God and man are brought together in him. He is the incarnate son. He is the God-man, as our author has told us way back in chapter 1. You see, in himself, he upholds both the mercy and the justice of God. And in himself, he dies the death every human deserves to ransom the life of all who will believe in him. Freedom, peace, hope, relationship with the living, the good, the just and merciful God by blood, 
by the death of Jesus, that brings forgiveness. We might find it hard to get our heads around the language of Hebrews. But this comparison and contrast with the high priest and the sacrifices he makes actually helps us understand when we think about it what Jesus has done. And it tells us that all the good you have as a believer and all the good you need if you're not yet a believer comes to you from Jesus' death, his blood shed for you. And that tells you that freedom, peace, hope, relationship actually comes from love. The love of God, the love of the Father and the Son. For you didn't earn or deserve that Jesus should make a sacrifice of himself. You could never demand it. This is something only God could do. The sacrifice only God could make. And so it could come only from his free will. No one can force him to act against his will. This sacrifice of the Son, this shed blood that brings pardon, comes from free kindness, from God's grace to the undeserving. And when you realise that the old covenant that Jesus' death has been compared and contrasted with comes from God, that it contains the sacrifice that he has commanded. Well, this comparison tells you that Jesus is better than the best. You see, what we think up to please God, to come near to him, our good works, our self-appointed sacrifices, our made-up religious rituals, our man-made religions, they just offend God with their demand that the living God should deal with us on our terms, be pleased with what we want to give him and not what he asked for from us. They just offend God. But the high priest and his sacrifice, they were given by God. They were the best because they were the only way God had provided. Yet what we see in Hebrews is that Jesus is incomparably incomparably better than the best. He's the only one who could offer himself unblemished, make the sacrifice that needed to be made to pay the penalty, the debt to God's law. Oh, and he is the only one, because he's the eternal son, the king, who brings his sacrifice, his high priestly work, in himself into the very presence of God to make an eternal salvation. Oh, he's the only one equipped to be the mediator, to bring God and man together, and he is the only one who can bring securely and forever what we need, freedom from death, peace with God, hope of life. He's the only one who can bring relationship with the true and living, the just and holy, the almighty and eternal God. He's the only one who can bring you, yes, you, freedom from death and lies, peace in the place of fear and shame and hope that is sure as you believe in him by believing his gospel that he's died for your sins and risen again. And so if you've never trusted Jesus, you ought to find out more about him or call out to him for that forgiveness he shed his blood to bring to all who believe in him.
Only from Jesus will you be able to find that peace and freedom and hope. And if you're sitting here today, a believer in Jesus, well, just remember, no one else, no one else will ever bring you what you need, freedom, peace, hope. There's nowhere else to turn, whatever the cost. Be faithful to him. And as you think of the good that he has brought you by his death, his shed blood, well, give yourself time to be grateful, to be thankful to him, always thankful that his blood cleanses you. And as you think of the good he has brought you, think also of the need for freedom, peace, and hope that your neighbours have. And so share Jesus. Share Jesus. He is the one who has cleansed our consciences to bring us peace with God. He is the one who by his death sets us free from the fear of death forever. He is the one who brings us into that relationship that will go on forever where we will love God. We will know him and we will rejoice always with him, forgiven forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good word that holds out before us, even if in an unfamiliar language, what Jesus has done for us by his death. Bring each of us, we pray, to know that freedom, freedom from the fear of death, freedom from the lie. Bring each of us to know that peace, peace with you that can come into your presence no longer afraid or ashamed. And bring each of us, we pray, to know that hope and to live with that hope, always looking ahead to the fulfilment of what you have promised us in the new heaven and earth. And we pray, gracious Father, as we know these things for ourselves, as we delight and rejoice in the love that has given your Son to be the sacrifice for our sins, move us by that love to love others and speak to them of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.